Welcome to the Mortise and Tenon Magazine podcast, where we're celebrating historic furniture making. This is episode number 12. I'm Mike. And I'm Joshua. And guess what just arrived? Uh, issue 6. M&T issue 6 arrived on a big truck. Uh, as usual, we went over to our storage place and met the driver and offloaded the pallets and uh, stacked them all in the unit. And so now they are uh, just awaiting uh, our packing party coming up on the 29th and 30th of this month. Yeah, and we got a we got a lot of people coming out. What is it? What is it like, yeah, like almost like thirty. I people think we could have thirty some odd people. So this shop is going to be uh, bursting with uh, lots of fun, lots of wrapping. So, yeah, uh, we're pretty excited about it. It's always a blast. Yeah, uh, we we tell everyone every time to bring something for show and tell, whether it's a tool or a piece of furniture, an interesting book. Um, and we have a time where we set aside, we all sit down and gather around and, uh, and see what, uh, what came in. And I'm hearing rumors of some pretty interesting things coming. Yeah. So, like my friend Will yeah. is bringing me a pit saw yeah. that I bought from him. Yeah. So, oh man, it's going to be a so good party. Maybe I mean, we'll get a trestle up and start <laughs> ripping some logs or something. I don't know. Any good party needs a pit saw. Yeah. That's, a, that's all I got to say. Yeah. yeah. You can bank on that. Uh, also, other thing going on is we have been receiving our uh, applications for our summer workshop that we're hosting here in the month of June. Yep, third week of June. Third week of June. And uh, oh my goodness, these applications are just awesome. It is so cool to hear from people who are really all fired up about uh, about handcraft, about historic furniture. Uh you know, it's mostly people who are just super interested in learning more. Yeah. Um, people who maybe have some experience, but not a lot, or they have a lot of experience in one area, but not much in another. And they, it's, it is going to be really hard picking. It is going to be hard. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it sounds weird to talk about applications for a woodworking class. But, right. Um, for those of you that haven't uh, seen the blog series where we were describing it, in short, basically, um, we were trying to figure out how to accommodate different things, how to do classes, but we ha are still uh, polishing off the construction of our workshop building here, and we're just trying to figure out the best way to work it. Also, we wanted to make um, uh, the financial uh, financial picture not a, to be a limitation for right. our, our students. So we said, hey, instead of uh, you know charging a tuition for this class, what if we swapped labor? Yeah. What if some people came out and they helped us work on the shop a little bit, and then we did you know, some bench time and doing instruction? So um, because of that, because it's basically a free class, um, instead of doing like a, you know, like wait online and try to get in quick and, you know, waitlist kind of thing. Um, get we, your deposit in. Get your deposit, all that kind of stuff. We just decided, let's take applications. Let's see where people are at. Um, and it's mostly just matching their vision and, and their goals what they want to see uh with what we're trying to do here so right. um we're we're just we've been reading through these applications so excited unfortunately uh the the window is closed now so you needed to have it postmarked by uh the 20th right. so that's passed so we're just waiting for the last few to come in um and then next week we'll be contacting the the six students and if this goes yeah. well this year we want to do some more classes next year this yeah. is sort of the trial to see you know, yeah, work we, out the kinks. We figure <laughs> one test run in 2019, and uh, who knows, 
who knows for next year. But who knows? but yeah, uh, potential students, be forewarned, you might end up doing some pit sawing. <laughs> it's it's hard to say what might go on. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So today on the podcast, we wanted to talk about um, what I wanted to talk about. I asked Mike if it would be okay if he would talk about his uh, new article in issue six. Um, his article is called A Tale of Two Trees, The Radical Efficiency of Green Woodworking. And uh, that's something that I've always been really impressed with, Mike. We come from a little bit different backgrounds in woodworking, and a lot of the green woodworking knowledge that I've been gaining has been through Mike. Um, and so he's always spent a bunch of time in the forest, knows the forest so much better than I. And so, you know... It, when he put this article together, it really was helpful for me to see the big picture, the big picture of not only efficient uh, processing of materials, i.e., you know, green wood and that kind of thing, but also to seeing the big picture of the forest, that mm. woodworkers know the forest. And so uh, I wanted to get Mike to talk about uh, his article and to kind of lay this out for, for you listeners. Um, and for those of you that have subscribed I mean, any, you know, next week we're going to be shipping these things out. So you'll see his article. Um, so it's a, it's a great one. Uh, so I guess just to kick it off, just to get started with this discussion, uh, could you give us a, a basic overview of um, the argument of this article? You know, what are you trying to, what is this article all about? Yeah, well, I, I wanted to start with, um, you know, looking at the relationship that humans have had with trees, you know. Uh, long before modern technology allowed us to just go and purchase a perfectly dimensioned and dried stock at the local home center. Um, we've been making things out of wood for a very long time. And uh, for the vast majority of human history, we started with the tree. Mm -hmm. And so what that required was a lot of knowledge that um, has been mostly lost today. Uh, I count myself clearly in the field of those who have lost that knowledge, sure. you know. Um, looking back through history and seeing how um, how wood was efficiently worked, it was not, you know, just purchased dry for the most part. It was uh, cut from the stump. And so um, what I wanted to look at was uh, just uh, what that could look like today if we would pursue that sort of woodworking again, um, exploring the economic and environmental feasibility of, of like relearning some of those old ways. Uh, and what we might gain by doing that. You know, all of us, uh, I think one thing I've seen in woodworkers is that we all have this kind of independent streak. You know, we're all, you know, we don't need that stupid store-bought furniture. You know, we're going to make it ourselves. And um, the one thing that strikes me is so often, though, we're still, we're still crippled because we're, we're stuck with the flatboard mentality. Our machines can only use flat wood. And uh, that's all that's available at, uh, at the local lumber yard. And so um, I just wanted to kind of look back and see um, how things were done and what we might learn from those old processes and techniques. Yeah. So, so where does our lumber come from today? You know, what, what kind of, um, not just the lumber yard, but what kind of processing is, uh, do trees go through to get from a standing tree to a process board that we're used to going to purchase. Yeah. What is that like? Yeah, I, I was uh, really struck when, when doing some of this research. Some of this information was, uh, I hadn't, you know, officially seen it. But basically, any board you buy in a big box lumberyard has traveled thousands of miles, more than likely. Um, 
you know, a lot of times these big, um, the, the, the big box centers have these distribution networks all across, in our case, it's in the US and Canada, Europe, South America. And so a lot of these things are coming from a great distance. Uh, if you're talking um, softwood, sometimes you can have a, uh, a tree cut in the Pacific Northwest one month, which ends up on the shelf of an East Coast store the next month, you know, all dried and ready to go. So from tree to from board. From tree to board that, that quickly. Hmm. And um, it's, there's a lot of energy that goes into that. I mean, it's super convenient. It's, super, it's a super advanced way of processing this natural material into something very predictable. Uh, but it's this, this amazingly intricate network that's required to have that kind of access to that kind of process material. So, but how do you get, how does wood get dried that fast? You know, if you have yeah, a tree the, and you have a, a you know, yeah. lumber on the sh shelf, how does that happen? Yeah, I mean, obviously we, we all know some, some species of wood are, you know, they, when you cut it, you know, half of their weight is water or more. Sometimes the saturation point is beyond that so that when you dry it, it's like less than half of the original weight of wet wood. So, uh, there's a ton of water that you have to force out. And in order to you know, maximize profitability, you wanna do that as quick as possible with, without completely destroying the wood, which is easy to do. And so wood is cut, stacked, stickered, put in these big kilns and air is heated to up to you know, sometimes 240 degrees and circulated oh, yeah. around it for days and days and weeks on end. And, um, you know, everybody listening maybe has, has gone and looked, maybe picked through a stack of two by fours and you've seen uh, the ones that didn't like that process so much. They're the ones that everybody sets aside until finally they're just thrown out or, you know, they spray paint the end and put it in the back for, you know, 49 cents for that one <laughs> and somebody will buy it and chop it up for, for firewood or whatever. Um, but that process is, uh, it can cause all kinds of damage to pieces, case hardening, and different things that is not always visible on the outside, but can cause a, a great loss in strength. Um, so yeah, those, those kind of issues are actually not as uncommon as you'd think. There's a lot of damage that happens from kiln drying um, with that degree of quickness and that high of temperature. Well, and what is the... Um moisture content they're shooting for in that. Yeah, so, you know, um, basically if you'd air dry something for, you know, a year or two, it, it would achieve something right here in Maine, maybe around 20% moisture content. When you kiln dry something, sometimes they're getting down to like 6%. So it is it is bone dry. It's drier than a bone, really. I mean, it's, it is dry, dry stuff. And so when you bring that back into a shop environment, really, it needs to reabsorb moisture. And so you're, you're baking all the moisture out and then it's forced to kind of take a deep breath when you get it back. And uh, it can do all kinds of unpredictable things. Yeah, huh, interesting. So. So uh, the thing I liked about this article the most, what, it, what I liked was how you took it from the small picture of, you know, someone's looking at, oh, this particular task or this way of doing, you know, a given operation is a lot of physical effort. I don't like that. And you've kind of taken that argument into the, the bigger picture. You've kind of caused the readers to think, as you say, beyond the immediate. Mm -hmm. I think in the bigger picture, um, and you talk about efficiency, 
um, and the power supply chain. And you even talk about wattage use. Yeah, right. You, talk, you compare, you know, running uh, machinery and the power of your arm. And um, could you tell us about some of those things? Yeah. Um, so one of the things that ins inspired me in, in researching this article was, uh, I guess it's a couple years ago now, I saw a video of an Olympic cyclist. And he was on a stationary bike running a dynamo, which was powering a toaster. Okay. And so he is, you know, he's got, you know, legs bigger than my waist, probably. I mean, he's just this <laughs> massive, massive guy. He's cranking on this bike and he just barely made it through the toasting cycle. Like when he ran out of, out of steam is when the toast popped. And so that really got me thinking like, wow, um, that's a tremendous amount of energy for what it achieves. Hmm. And we look all around us and we are using energy like that. Um, and all that energy has to be generated somewhere, whether it's a guy in your basement running a stationary bike, you know, probably not, <laughs> or it's, it's a, a dammed river or it's a nuclear power plant, somewhere that mechanical energy is being generated. Now for us as woodworkers, I'm thinking specifically of our table saws, band saws, those things take a lot of energy, uh, especially when you consider um, if you were running a stationary bike trying to power a generator to run your table saw, you couldn't do it. You need to generate like 2,000 watts to run a table saw. And so um, when we look at hand tools, when we look at um, using a, a rip saw, you might be racing somebody on a table saw and go, man, they're just flying through that. I feel like I'm really slow. But the fact of the matter is that for what it's doing, your handsaw is so much more efficient than that table saw because, you know, our arms can generate like between 30 and 60 watts, right? Hmm. So we're not, we're not all that powerful, especially compared to like an electrical motor and in a, a powered shop tool, but we can still rip that board and it doesn't take all that much longer. And our power source isn't a hundred miles away at some nuclear plant, but it's whatever we just ate for lunch, yeah. you know? Um, and so that kind of efficiency, looking at the bigger picture, like beyond the plug for my machine, you know, looking way down the supply chain is mm. the kind of thing I wanted to keep coming back to in this article. Yeah. And you even somewhat were, you were talking about, uh, the back to the land movement you talked about Drew Langsner and some of that kind of connection to right. seeing that, looking at the supply chain and, um, finding the joy in, in, you know, have closing that loop a little bit. And yeah, yeah, knocking that. a few links out of the supply chain, so to speak. Hmm. Okay. So then, so you talk about that, but you also talk about the the moisture content of the wood and the fact that when you use wood, uh, when it's still wet, that that is an efficient way to work. Yeah. So why is working green wood efficient? Yeah, wood, wood is just a miraculous thing. Wood is an amazing material. Um, Obviously, it can cause us some problems. It can move around and, and wiggle and dry and check and crack. But wood is really cool in that it has this trait where it's super workable before it dries. And at times, it's almost impossible to work after it dries. Um, the, the vernacular woodworker of the past knew all that. And, and uh, they knew how to, how to use those traits. Like you could build a chair shaping it with simple tools in a way that was very easy. Like if you've ever sat down and, and peeled a piece of wood that you've just cut and, and rived out of a, a log 
and you work it with a draw knife, and you're like, oh, this is like butter. You can take off these big ribbons, and it, it just feels great. Mm-hmm. And then once it dries, uh, depending on the species, you you have a hard time getting anything done with that piece of wood. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, but wood is amazing in that. The, the idea of uh, wood grain working with the grain, um, grain is great. You can part the wood with the grain, you know, in a suit... It's a super easy way to do it, and um, you know, relatively easy. Yeah, sure. Splitting splitting huge oak logs is not easy, but it's um, it's the most efficient way to do that. It's certainly more efficient than sawing it. Sure. In terms of energy use, um, but trees have these virtues that you can exploit when they're green, and then um, use those virtues as um, as they dry, like you can build joints that shrink around themselves and lock themselves tight so that when it's dry, it's never coming apart. Um, and so I guess that's that's what I'm getting at when I talk about the efficiency of green woodworking. When you understand the material and use it in the state in which it's easiest to work, um, you can save a, a lot of energy, um, but that requires knowledge. Yeah. So. So you're basically saying smarter, not harder, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's like I, I always like to say, oh, yeah, uh, uh, you know, measure measure once, cut twice. But, um, you know, I try not to do that, but that's how I always do it. And, yeah. you know, work harder, not smarter. But when you're talking about doing this day in and day out, or when you're talking about someone who lived a few hundred years ago who needs efficiency uh, to, to get by, to make a living, um, and to be effective in the work they're doing. This knowledge uh, makes a tremendous difference, and the way that you work the materials makes a tremendous difference. Um, yeah, green work, woodworking is efficient in the big picture too, just because it requires only human energy. Hmm. Um, you can do all these green woodworking operations without any power whatsoever, and in yeah. fact, that's how it's always been done. Um, so it's it's minimal impact, it's simple tools, and it's local. Like you were saying, Joshua, yeah. like the idea of the local food movement is that um, when you're investing in in uh, local um, the the reliability of the local food chain, you're investing in the health of your local environment. You're gaining knowledge about your local environment. You know you're investing in your neighbors and. Honestly, green woodworking is a lot like that. Mm. Um, you know, maybe call it the local wood movement or something like that. Sure. You know, it's the idea that you know your trees, you know your materials, and um, by managing them well, you're improving your environment for yourself and for your neighbors. Mm. Okay, yeah. So are you saying green woodworking is uh, applicable to all projects? Like, do you do... Are you saying that all projects can be done with green wood? Or do you, is there a place for, you know, lumber that's dried already? Uh, there's definitely a place for it. Okay. I would say if I was trying to do my uh, bathroom renovations with green wood, my <laughs> wife would not appreciate how long that would take me. Um, you know, there's, there's a great value and benefit for the system that we have today and being able to, uh, to make good use of the supply chains that exist, you know? Um, and so I do appreciate those things, but I feel like with so many things in life, um, you know, looking at things and taking them in moderation to, to step back and to say, okay, so here's the supply chain that I'm reliant on. I'm dependent on this to get 
this lumber that I need for this project. Um, but where does that leave me? Uh, does that does that leave me in a lurch if I if I can't get these things? You know, I I can't do anything with my woodworking skills if I don't have access to a lumber yard with all this perfectly dimensioned stock. Um, that that's a dangerous place I think for us. Mm. And so I think that uh, learning about these skills and and growing in them and incorporating them more and more into your woodworking, it it's really beneficial for us as uh, um, as makers. And it's also a lot of fun. Mm. It is so much fun. Uh, one of our articles in issue six, uh, Joshua and I got to sit down with uh, with Yoga Sundquist, and we just just talking with him. He just has so much joy yeah. this infectious joy about say, the word infectious, yeah, like. working with green wood and yeah. going out into the forest in search of that perfect piece that tree that has just the right bend in it yeah. and it's it's this magical sense of approaching the materials that we really frankly lose when we're just looking for the straightest flattest smoothest most not free piece of wood mm. um so that's yeah what i wanted to get at yeah so you were talking about the benefits of sourcing your own material, um, so, but you also touched on something that you, that you didn't bring up. Is in the article you talked about the benefits of knowing the tree before it's down, knowing mm -hmm. the particular tree and what you want to use it for. Um, and so, why does it help to know the tree before it becomes lumber? What are the benefits you get from that kind of relationship? Yeah. Um, uh, one of the people who I reached out to for this um, this article is uh, Dawson Moore. He goes by Michigan Sloyd on Instagram. Um, he has a really interesting story. A couple years ago, uh, out of a single white birch tree that he felled on his land, he's he's a sixth generation, I believe, on his family farm. Uh, he, he took down one very large white birch tree and uh, got an entire year's work out of that tree, making spoons, uh, cups, uh, different things out of the bark, um, all kinds of things out of that one tree, which he knew very well. Like, uh, in essence, I would say he, he grew up with that tree. Um, and he talks a bit in the article about uh, the idea of when you know the woods and you know the trees, you see how they're growing, you see the way that they grow in, in relation to the sun, the sunlight, the slope that they're on, you learn where the good wood is. You learn to look for quality in the standing tree itself. And then when you take that tree down and you work it, you, you really gain this really uh, deep insight and understanding mm -hmm. about how all those forces come together. You know, we love, everybody loves figured wood, right? I mean, you love to look at it, but what causes that? And you can't really understand that until you see the tree growing there and you say, okay, look at this stress. This is, because figured wood is basically, in many cases, it's a stress. And um, so you say, okay, so what caused that? This tree is growing this way. It's, it's um, uh, competing for uh, resources with these other trees. It's growing this way. This storm came through a few years ago and took that branch off. And so now, 
now you have this really interesting situation where there's rot setting in, but it, to, you know, some people like working with rotten wood. They call it spalted, you know? It's this nice thing. <laughs> they like making furniture out of rotten wood. Uh, no, I, I actually like spalted wood too, but it is just rotting wood. Um, but all these things come together and you, you can't really understand it until you've seen it again and again in a tree that's growing and you take it down and you know exactly what's going on. You see it from the outside and then you see it from the inside. Um, you know, I was saying earlier, and I, I really can't emphasize it enough, but like wood is really a miraculous thing. Okay, it's, it's a living thing. We look at um, a table we've made and stuff that we make is, is beautiful in its own right because we are, we are imparting our skills on it, right? We are, uh, they say, like imparting culture and raw materials. That's like what folk art and things like that are all about. But the raw materials in and of themselves are beautiful. Like if you look at a tree through four seasons, up here in Maine, right now we're coming out of, you know, the, the deepest, darkest, uh, coldest of the seasons. And the trees all around us have been loaded with snow. They've been bent over by winds. They've had, uh, on the sunny days, the chickadees flit around in the branches and they sing their songs and everything. And the trees are producing food for the chickadees and the squirrels and for the, the deer and bears love acorns. They come gather around the oak trees. And uh, they're doing this process and they're gathering nutrients and they're creating this raw material for us. And we don't need to touch it, you know? Um, it, every other raw material we use on earth is, it takes a whole lot more processing. It takes uh, so much more investment of energy. We just look at trees and they just keep doing it. Um, so they're really, uh, I would say pretty much our most miraculous raw material mm. for what they do. And, and it's awesome to consider. Uh, and when you are, you know, living on the land and, uh, watching those trees grow and thinking about the uses for them down the road, I, I feel like that's just a whole new level of appreciation for these raw materials. Yeah, well, and, and you were talking about, so for down the road, you talked about <clears throat> about coppicing. Yeah. And you talked about using curved branches too. Um, so, you know, it's not just, uh, it was actually cool because we were able to use a, a photograph we got from Old Servage Village mm. of a saw yeah. from a crooked branch. Yeah. Um, and then we also included a photograph of a crooked branch that was similar to kind of show how you can source uh, a frame saw from a, a crazy branch. Yeah. Um, so it's not just about, well, you, you cut down a huge tree and you split it into big planks and then you can saw out right. these curved parts. Even more than that, you can use all the stuff that gets chipped or mulched. Um, you can use all these curved branches. So could you talk about um, some of the uses of of curved branches and the benefits of that, and then also coppicing, which is a whole another yeah, it's awesome a whole thing. other thing. This is what you call you were calling what letting trees do the work. Yeah, letting right. trees do the work for you because okay. they're they're really good at that. You know, when we want to make, uh, say, uh, a piece of furniture with some some bent member that has to be fairly strong, something with a big curve in it, uh, a lot of times we'll we'll get away with either steam bending, or we will laminate. Uh, you know, layer epoxy in the wood together. Or, you know, we'll come up with this fancy uh, jigged up way of dealing with it, basically forcing the wood into the shape we want. Because what we want is that continuous grain from one end to another. Um, 
of course, trees are really good at making curved shapes, compound shapes with continuous grain from one end to another. It's kind of what they do. Um, it's what they live for. And so uh, part of the fun of green woodworking, especially when you're looking for specific shapes, is going out and searching for those shapes. And I know, Joshua, in your article, when you were, you were making um, wooden Let's not brace. bring that up. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's awesome because when we were at... Um, <laughs> We're, you know, we've been inspired with some of the stuff, uh, Eric Sloan's drawings of braces that are from bent branches. And then down at Old Sturbridge Village in their, their tool collection, we saw several examples of those, right? Yeah. Of, of from bent branches and... Yeah, all sorts of tools. With, yeah, with from, from curved branches. If you've read um, Woodworking in Estonia, uh, which Lost Art Press has republished recently... Uh, if you haven't read it, you you need to. It's yeah. awesome. But it's full of these awesome images, these drawings and photos of um, tools and implements and furniture made from naturally grown shapes. And basically, you, you go into the woods and you say, I need that shape. And it's it's essentially like going into the local big box store. You say, oh, there it is right there. That's the one I want. Take it off the shelf. Um, Yoga, in his article shares a story where he was building this love seat and it needs this s curve shaped back mm -hmm. and he went off into the woods and searched for the the perfect s curve and he went and he looked for a whole day and didn't find it and he was like oh my goodness i'm gonna have to go and tell these people i can't do this because that i don't have that piece of wood and then the next day he went out and he spotted something in the distance and he's like ah oh, is that it he gets a little closer and it's looking better he gets a little closer and he he walks right up to it and he puts his hands on it and he says that's it that's the one yeah. and uh so i really feel like that is uh so much of the fun of this process yeah um i made a um uh a turning saw out of a bent branch i i kind of drew what i had pictured and i went out in the woods and i went looking around and i'm like okay species okay Maple would work. Hey, there's a good one. Okay, that's the one I want. Um, and that's just a lot of fun to go searching for those shapes. Um, I know some friends of ours, uh, um, Peter Follinsby makes, would you say most of his spoons out of bent branches? It sounds like it. Yeah. yeah I mean. so, some people like using, uh, you know, really straight grain stuff and, um, uh, and axing the, um, uh, the, the shapes into it. Uh, but Peter likes going and finding the shapes and using those um, straight from the branch. And it's continuous grain that way, and it's actually quite a bit stronger. So what about coppicing then? What, yeah. what, is, what is coppicing? Yeah, actually? so we're Americans, so we don't really get too much about what this is. Um, coppicing has been practiced in, uh, in Europe for a very long time, uh, thousands of years, in fact. And coppicing just exploits the tendency of some species of trees. When you uh, cut them at the stump, they, they want to keep living. So what they do is they send up shoots, and they send up sometimes a lot of shoots. And these shoots, because they have this mature root system to, uh, to provide them what they need, they can grow explosively fast. Um, and much faster than you know planting a little sapling or sapling starting from a seed or something like that which can take years to get any appreciable height and most of those uh die they're killed by the winter or whatever but um with coppicing whether it's natural coppicing like if a, a tree is knocked down 
by the wind, but the root, if it, if it breaks off, the roots are intact. Or if a beaver uh, takes the tree down, which yep. we see yep. a lot yeah, up I've here, um, it'll send up shoots. And these shoots will, I mean, they'll grow feet per year. And really, um, in, in Europe, uh, especially in the UK, I think, um, coppicing was perfected. Uh, the art of coppicing for uh, resources for things like making charcoal. Um, they would get into a cycle of, of a period of years in, in a woodlot, and they would um, grow and raise this coppice specifically for these materials. So they would grow um, coppice poles to use uh, in making charcoal, and they'd grow them for six years, they'd cut them down, they'd bring them and throw them in the kilns and bury it and make charcoal. And then a few years later, it's ready to go again. And these materials, because the trees will keep regenerating these shoots and these shoots grow so fast, they can keep doing that. In some instances, um, coppicing can be done so that you can make the, the shoots grow to certain shapes. And you see that a lot. Um, sometimes shipbuilding, um, they would force trees to grow in a shape that would be um, fitting for a rib or a stem or something like that. That's the long view. That is the long view. Seriously. <laughs> yeah. um, to, to manage a woodland in such a way that you say, okay, in 10 years, that's going to be ready. Uh, you know, or uh, something along those lines. Yeah. And it really is amazing. It's taking, taking a step back and looking at the bigger picture. But uh, those, those found shapes are, uh, it's just a lot of fun to do that and to say, okay, I'm going to let the tree do this work for me because, honestly, that's efficient. Trees can do that kind of work very efficiently. And then if we can just take it and use that shape, uh, that saves us a lot of work. And we can uh, thank the tree for that effort. Yeah. Okay. So, for, so in my mind, I'm thinking the elephant in the room here is, what about those of us that don't have a plot of forest of our own? You know, how, what if we don't live? I'm so sorry. <laughs> what if we don't live r rurally? We don't have access to woods that we can harvest from. Yeah. Um, how does this kind of this way of working? Um, how can it benefit people living in a city or living in an area where they don't know where they can harvest from? How can they get connected with this kind of working? Yeah. Um, you and I have talked about this a lot driving around here. We'll look and see just a pile of, of cut birch by the road, just kind of randomly. Some tree that came down in a storm, and the, the power company came through and cut it up and left it there to rot, basically. And we certainly know of people in cities around the world who basically they go out like into Central Park, and they find a tree-cutting crew who's cut a branch, and they're like, oh, can I please, please, please have that branch? I really want that branch. And they'll tie it to their bicycle and, and ride it home. And um, it's, it is difficult in some circumstances and some, for some living situations to have a, a decent supply of green wood. So, I mean, there, there are certainly a few things you can do. I, I give a few ideas in the article, um, such as relying on tree trimming services or arborists. You can go find your local neighborhood arborist and mm. get a good relationship going. Um, yeah, because they're, they're taking branches down all day every yeah, day I mean, all day every day so, and yeah. and they're maybe they're just chipping them i know that um we have heard from arborists at times yeah. who say you know taking down this tree or uh what do you think is this something that you could use or should we turn yeah. it into firewood yeah and um it's it's definitely hard to say no <laughs> um you know whether or not 
uh, we'll ever get to use all, all the wood that's offered or anything like that. But um, yeah, uh, other people we know, uh, if you live in the city, let's say you're in New York City and you have very limited access to, um, to good green wood. Well, just a couple hours outside the city, if you want to take a, a weekend drive to the country, you can find, uh, you know, woodlots or say your, your long lost aunt and uncle have a farm in upstate New York that you haven't gone to visit them since you were a kid, right? But you love spending time on that farm. You remember the goats and the chickens and the woods that they had out back. And you know what? Honestly, I'm sure they'd love to have you come visit. And probably they wouldn't even think it's too strange if you bring a trunk load of firewood back to the city with you. I'm sure that they'd give it to you for free. And um, which actually brings up another point that I, uh, this is kind of what first drew me into green woodworking was mm. the cost. Mm. Sure, it's yeah. pretty cheap to get going. <laughs> uh, cheap to free, you know? You honestly don't need much more than a, a blade and a stick to get started in green woodworking. That's about as pro approachable as it gets. Um, but the tools are, are inexpensive, especially when you consider what you can spend on shop tools these days. Um, the tools for green woodworking are simple. They're, it's easy to grasp their function. Um, it you know, takes longer to master their function. But um, the wood is, uh, so much easier to get. Honestly, I will say, even with the struggles of living in a city, um, good quality green wood in terms of cost and, uh, and that sort of thing, it just blows you know, dried hardwood out of the water. Mm. Um, Mike Abbott, I, I quoted him in my article, he figured that uh, you know, um, green wood that you source from a log is like at least 100 times cheaper than what you buy from a, a retailer. Mm. Like 100 times cheaper. Um, that's that's a fair cost savings. It's kind of worth the extra effort to go looking a little harder. Um, so yeah, uh, just there are all kinds of angles that that I was I was looking at this big picture at, um, you know, in terms of of um, environmental impact and value in in uh, doing woodworking in this way, in terms of cost effectiveness, in terms of energy use. I kept coming at it from different angles and I kept walking away going, wow, this is really a radical way of pursuing woodworking. Mm. It's, uh, it's pretty remarkable. So what do you, what, when you were sitting down to write this article, what was your goal? What were you trying to inspire in readers, uh, by presenting this, this radical way? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, I, I can say I myself, I, I'd love to pass along the inspiration that I've gotten in uh, learning more and growing in, in uh, green woodworking. Um, I've been inspired in studying the practices of the past and seeing how, um, how makers knew these materials so well because they, they lived with them. Um, I've been inspired by uh, talking to people like Yoga, who is... Uh, still um, honing the fine edge of his his skills mm. you know with each new thing he makes he made he's made thousands and thousands of things from from furniture to to carved things just absolutely beautiful work and he says every time he, he just feels like he wants to push it a little further get a little bit better um, and I am 
I'm inspired by that. And also just uh, maybe the biggest thing is just getting to the point where I have a closer connection with my materials um, of, of working with the forces that shape them instead of working against them. Yeah. You know, um, if I, and I do and I will continue to buy dried lumber at a lumber yard for different things that I need, I don't have any kind of a relationship with that piece of wood. Mm -hmm. I have no idea, like, I'd have to do a good bit of research to determine, like, what time zone it grew in, mm -hmm. you know? It, it, it is not anything, um, there's no strong connection there. It's just a raw material, right? I, I don't have any personal, I don't personally put any value on it besides the value of the material that it offers me. Um, you know, it's like the idea of, uh, oh my goodness, what was that movie? My mom loved this movie, this Robert Redford movie. So he, he's this uh, young baseball phenom, okay, way back in the heyday. And he makes a baseball bat out of a tree that grew in the front yard of his family farm that was struck by lightning, mm. okay? So that's some story written into that bat. That, <laughs> that bat has way more of a story written into it than if it were made from some a block of white wood from the Home Depot, right? Uh, part of that connection, that local connection with the piece of wood, it, it writes story into the piece of furniture that you're already making. And so it's one thing to say, here's this table that I made. Isn't this a great table? Here's this table that I made. You know, that tree was growing out back and uh, it came down in a storm. And so I, I cut it up and... Uh, I made this table, or I made this chair from a, a maple out back, or this was up at, at Grandma's farm. Hmm. And, and that kind of local personal connection with the materials, um, I find, is, is just a very powerful thing when it comes to we're making things with our own hands. We're working story into it. We're working creativity into it. Uh, I think this just adds a whole other layer of that. Hmm. That's awesome. Well, thank you. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for wanting to talk about it. Yeah. And thank you for listening to the Morrison Tenon podcast. If you haven't already, uh, you can subscribe uh, either at iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, if you have any comments or questions, you can leave them below or shoot us an email or whatever. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. So thanks for listening. See you next time. Mm -hmm.